0: Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 695 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 27th of May 2023 as I record this from Auckland, New Zealand. So in today's show I'm talking to John Fox about the linchpin writer crafting your novel's key moments. We talk about what those various linchpin moments are and how you can write them more effectively, as well as how writing a book is different to writing a blog, and a few of John's thoughts on the impact of AI for editors. So that's coming up in the interview section. So, in publishing and book marketing updates on the Ask Ally podcast this week, Orna Ross and Sasha Black talk about writing and publishing across multiple genres, the practicalities of fitting it all in, writing different things at different points in our lives, the challenges of branding, targeting different audiences, and the joys of writing across genres, as well as balancing your time and more. So that's on the Ask Ally podcast, and I normally do my monthly show with Orna, but this month, because I'm in New Zealand, she has done the show with Sasha Black, so that is fun So I also write cross genre and I can add that it is indeed one of the most challenging things, but also something that I don't want to change, although I have definitely fought fought it, I guess, over the years. Many of you who've been listening for a long time know that I have, oh, I've tried to do one thing, as that book says, but I just can't do it. And, and I mean, even this podcast, for example, <laughs> I mean, if if I just focused on podcasting or I just focused on writing a particular type of fiction or nonfiction, then things might be easier. But because I have multiple streams of income, it means I can write a pilgrimage memoir as well as action adventure, dark fantasy, self-help and all of this. And I, I definitely, I, I do not have an one particular book that makes more money than any other book. Um, I mean, certain groups of them do better, but because I have all these different genres it means that together they all sort of come together to make a decent business. So I've been a published author now for 15 years and full-time for almost 12 years. And there is no way I could have sustained a career this long without writing cross-genre as I just would have been too bored. And this is something else to take into consideration. If you're someone who's fighting against the sort of mainstream recommendation of writing in one genre, well, you may not be able to sustain it. (laughs) Because there are challenges in writing cross genre. But if that is the way your muse rolls, as mine does, then you have to make the most of the adventure. Now, talking of pilgrimage, which of course is my latest book, my pilgrimage memoir, I am on the Women Who Walk podcast, talking about my solo walking, as well as some of my other travels in Africa and Israel, how I find ideas for my books, and tips for solo travel. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can listen to Women Who Walk uh, about lots of different travel things, and thanks to Louise Ross for that interview, and also the Ask Ally podcast. So ask and then A L L I with Orna Ross and Sasha Black. In personal news, I'm still in Auckland as I record this, but heading home this week. So I'm just going to do a quick intro today and a longer one next week. I have quite a few things I want to update on, but I'm going to leave it until I'm in a better audio situation (laughs) because I'm just in an Airbnb and my ears are like, oh, this is just not good enough to record. But just a reminder about my webinars on using AI tools as an author. I am running the same webinar four times because I want to keep the group small and so many people are interested. I have added some more dates. So one session is completely sold out, but I have added a couple of others. So if you go to thecreativepen.com forward slash live l Ive links in the show notes. You can find there are still some tickets left for Sunday, the twenty fifth of June, Monday, twenty sixth of June, and I've added a new session for Saturday, the first of July, twenty twenty three. And they are all in different time slots. So wherever you are in the world, there should be a session that you can attend. That is the same webinars. So it will be the same material, um, just recorded at different times. I'm not selling the recordings. They'll just be for ticket holders. So tickets are seventy five pounds, and there are some. Left Left, you can book them at thecreativepen.com forward slash live. Oh, I should say, I'm covering things like attitude to AI, ethical usage, copyright, and then I will go into how to prompt ChatGPT in the most effective way, designing your mega prompts for both fiction and non-fiction. We'll be talking about world building, characters, book titles, outlining, discovery writing, and a lot more. I'll also demonstrate some aspects of write and also pro-writing aid for the um, extension they have now with AI. Also ChatGPT for book marketing and Midjourney. I'll be demonstrating how I'm using Midjourney. And oh my goodness, I'm having such a good time with Midjourney. I'm building images for my catacomb. I'm going to do a book trailer for the first time in like a decade (laughs) because the uh, images are so good now. And also I'll talk about what's coming next. In AI, including Auto GPT, text to video, and more. I'll also be doing a QA. So it is a two hour session and yeah, thecreativepen.com forward slash live. Also, if you'd like a book, on all this check out co-writing with chat gpt ai powered storytelling with jay thorne now i have co-written several books with jay and he has also co-written books with tons of other authors he might well be the industry expert on co-writing and collaboration and he has now done this book co-writing with chat gpt links in the show notes or in all the usual places and i've read it it's full of super useful and interesting ways to use chat gpt and i think this is one of the most interesting things is that every person you talk to is using it in a different way um, so and you can learn bits and bobs from everyone so yeah links in the show notes to that so thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments james hazelwood sent a picture out cycling and listening to the show he said it's ironic i was listening to your episode on health with toby neal while being out healthy cycling Zoe Ruth said on Twitter about the Stephen Marsh episode. This was terrific episode and death of an author was fabulous. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Anyone who thinks you just press a button and a book pops out obviously has not tried the tools nor had the fun of working with them. And she also says, I love the A4 proudly adding that moniker to my work. Thank you. And the A4 is the AI assisted artisan author, which is my my approach to all of this. So remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen with a double N, send me pictures of where you're listening. Email me, joanna at com, or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid because however you choose to publish, whether you go direct to Readers or you go indie or you want a traditional deal, you need to make that your book the best it can be. And also this applies to if you want to write with AI tools, you still need to make That your book the best it can be so I use pro writing aid multiple times in my process once after the full draft is finished before I print it for hand edits then again before I send it to my editor and uh, I've also used it for the long form solo episodes like the AI assisted artisan author I used it there I use it for uh, any long form writing and uh, I also use it after working with my human editor before publishing it is one of my absolute must use tools so, why use software to help you? Why don't you just learn all the grammar and writing rules and apply them yourself? Well, we all use tools to improve our process, and we are also often blind to our writing issues. It helps to have another pair of eyes, even if the eyes are software. Pro Writing Aid knows all the rules and helps you apply them, and of course, you can choose not to make the changes as you like. It helps with making your writing more active, finding repeated words, finding words you could improve, sentence structure, grammar and punctuation issues, as well as typos, spacing problems, and more. It integrates with all the usual word processing tools, and importantly for many of us, it integrates with Scrivener, which is how I use it. I open Pro Writing Aid on my computer, then open the Scrivener project and work through each chapter. I learn something every time and it also has a load of reports to help improve your writing in multiple ways. So won't a human editor do all this for you? Well, yes, they can. But I'd rather pay my editor to fix the things that the software can't. As brilliant as ProWritingAid is, it cannot read the manuscript as a whole or comment on the bigger issues like character development or inconsistencies or plot holes. So I use ProWritingAid as my essential editing tool before sending to my human editor. So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link prowritinga.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A, that is prowritinga.com forward slash Joanna. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time, as ever, is sponsored by my wonderful patrons and I'm especially... Uh, just really thankful and grateful for those who support the show at the moment. Um, it demonstrates you find the show useful and want it to continue. And it has been a pretty difficult time in the last uh, week to 10 days. There's been a few controversies and the uh, anti-AI force <laughs> has been targeting many of us. So um I am just so grateful to those of you who support the show and uh remind me that uh, you want me to keep doing this basically so I don't run away screaming which <laughs> some days I consider <laughs> so thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for years and months and weeks and days you're brilliant and thanks to new and returning patrons this week Danny, Nina Olsen, Nicholas Johnson, Chris Grant, Tracy Higley, Judy M Baker, Audria Martin, David Levin, Jorge Para, Mage Prometheus, Sean Wilson and David Kazzie and remember if you support the show on patreon you'll get my extra monthly q a for patrons only and that is around 45 minutes of extra audio where i answer your questions on writing craft publishing book marketing making money with your writing ai and more and you also get access to the backlist so if you want more of me answering questions you can listen to pretty much as much as you like (laughs) you can support the show with just a few dollars euros pounds Many other currencies. Uh, if you would like that, you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. John Matthew Fox is an award-winning short story writer, a developmental editor, writing teacher, and blogger. His latest book is The Lynchpin Writer: Crafting Your Novel's Key Moments. So welcome back to the show, John.
1: Thank you. It's so wonderful to be back.
0: Yes, indeed. Just in case people don't know you, tell us a bit more about how you got into writing and publishing.
1: I started my blog way back in the day, 2006, just to join the literary conversation. And sort of over time, it evolved from a blog on sort of literary news and commentary into more of a craft blog, just helping writers with their novels, short stories, children's books, any sort of fictional storyline. And now I've been editing for quite a while for authors doing developmental edits. I offer courses, both on-demand courses and live courses. And I'm starting up sort of a publishing branch, which is self-publishing assistance, I like to call it. Not traditional publishing, not vanity publishing, but sort of something in between.
0: Yeah, there's certainly a call for all of that. And your courses are great. I think you've got some fantastic information on your site. And is this the first non-fiction book book you've done?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. I had the short story collection and then this is the nonfiction book just came out in October. So relatively new, but I've been getting lots of feedback from from writers who have been enjoying it and using it to write their books and revise their books. And uh, those are lovely emails to get. I guess I'd been helping writers in one way or another for a full decade through emails and articles and every which in developmental editing and whatnot. So I'm like, well, why don't I try to... Put down some of the things that that are most helpful for writers. Why don't I try to put that down on the page? And I have a good amount of stories about the writing life as well. So I thought I'd include those. So it's not just cut and dried, boring, do this and do this, craft information, one, two, three. Yeah. And and I think it has been helpful for writers. It's been a joy to interact with them on on another level. And I do think nonfiction in general is a lot easier for me to write than fiction is. Um, There's so much imagination, which has to go into fiction and so much like plotting and characterization. Nonfiction, man, I just sat down and wrote it and it was, it just spilled out so easily. So Mm. (laughs) it made made me enjoy the process of, of writing quickly.
0: Yeah. I mean, we'll get into the book in a minute, but I know a lot of people listening, they might also have years worth of blog posts, articles, and you have a lot of really well-crafted Uh, articles on your site but did you how did you turn some of those into a book or did you start from scratch or because you know a while back there was this sort of from blog to book just output your wordpress files into a book format and it's like no that's not how you do it (laughs) so did you use elements of your blog articles and rewrite them or did you start from scratch what was that process?
1: I definitely started from scratch because if you know anything about how to write for online media, it is just vastly different than writing for a book. You, Yeah, like you said, you definitely can't take that blog post and just throw it in a chapter and be like, all right, I'm good. Um, It doesn't worry like that at all. So what I did is I took maybe topics that had been really important to my readers, certain topics that I'd written a post on. And then I just wrote on that topic, but completely from scratch. Like, I don't think I used a single sentence from the blog inside the book. It's all new stuff. And then there was some stuff that wouldn't work as blog posts. Like, I don't know, like writing writing about wonder or writing about emotion. Like, that's stuff that, like, people aren't going to search for. It's really difficult to write a blog post about that. But they work really well inside of a book, probably because not a lot of authors talk about them or not a lot of authors, like, study those topics. So the book gave me a lot more latitude to go into areas that I hadn't been able to cover with the blog.
0: Yeah, I think that's good advice. I, I do think starting from scratch is a good idea. <laughs> okay, let's get into the book. So the book is called The Lynchpin Writer. So what are these linchpin moments and why are they important?
1: So linchpin refers to these little pins that go inside the hub of a wheel so it doesn't fall off the axle, right? So That's the original term. And then what it's become is a term that refers to like really key people or objects or ideas inside of an organization. And I think a linchpin moment inside of a book is sort of a make or break moment where the reader might stop reading. Or if the reader doesn't like that particular scene, it's going to ruin the book for them. So they're the most key places in your novel where you absolutely have to get them right. And so as writers, we should probably concentrate on those places more and make sure we really nail them. And it's stuff like um, when you became a writer, it's stuff like a a death scene for a character. It's stuff like romance or or a particularly climactic romantic scene. It's stuff like describing a character for the first time or ending a chapter or ending the whole book. Like all of these are really critical moments where the writer, you just got to nail them. You got to nail them to make your reader happy.
0: Well there first up you mentioned there a linchpin moment for an author and i think that's really interesting in the book you say when they became a writer and i find this a very interesting phrase became a writer because to me these days there are a lot of different routes to market there are i mean someone might be a blogger for a decade that makes them a writer, but that doesn't necessarily make them an author. Someone might have millions of Kindle pages or millions of views on Wattpad, but no physical book. And these days, obviously, no traditional publisher. So what do you mean by somewhat a linchpin moment for the author and how might people measure it?
1: Yeah, I don't think the medium's very important, right? I mean, if they just have millions of ebook reads or millions of reads online, that that doesn't matter to me as opposed to a print book. Like I feel like if you're if you're writing, you're a writer, right? And if people are reading your writing in whatever form, then you're an author. You know it's I don't think it's super super complex. Um, I think ultimately writers they feel nervous about calling themselves writers because there's this crisis of confidence inside yourself. And I'd say just Hey, sum on up the inner confidence. Like you are writing, you are putting words down on a page. They will find readers if they already haven't. So just call yourself a writer. and Feel confident about that.
0: <laughs> easier said than done and actually <laughs> i do think this is important because a lot of i mean talking to a lot of people after the pandemic including myself we haven't necessarily been writing a lot because mm. of various reasons <laughs> mental health reasons or burnout or and there so there are a lot of people myself included who make a good deal of money from backless books so actually you can still be an author and not be an active writer. So I actually, I think these definitions become important when your self-image are based on these
1: things. You mentioned like people taking breaks or 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 not writing for a time. And I actually think that's key to being a writer. I think a healthy writer does take breaks. I mean, after my th- first book, I didn't write any fiction for a while. And I think it's probably... I don't know, I was burned out or the book didn't launch with the fanfare I expected to. I sort of had to recalibrate my expectations for being a writer and come up with a new project to work on. To me, that's not an aberration. Like you're not failing as a writer if you're not writing for a time period. Life happens, you know, Uh, parents get sick, children are born. Like it's fine to take a break from writing, I think writers end up having ideas and coming back to writing at some point. That's what makes you a writer. But I think people shouldn't feel ashamed just because they're not writing for a period of time. Like that's part of the writing process.
0: No, I like that because I do think one of the most common questions I get is, oh, so you say you're a full time author, but how much time do you actually spend writing? as if that's the thing that will make a difference to being a full-time <laughs> author. So, yeah, I think we just get a bit touchy around that question. But just let's move into the book. So someone uh, is getting into their novel, and you talk there about some of the linchpin moments. Now, for me, I am, with fiction, I sample. So for me, the opening, that first chapter, that really is a linchpin moment. So what are some tips for getting the linchpins of the beginning right?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. That first chapter is one of the biggest linchpin moments because, you know, you don't write it right and suddenly the reader sets your book aside and never returns to it. So in the book, I talk about four different steps that you want to get in that first chapter. And one of them is, is characterization. I think you have to deliver a character which is set apart from other characters who seems unique, who is doing something a little bit out of the norm, something strange, Something that attracts us to a character and makes us think, yeah, yeah, I'd like to go on a journey with them. Another thing I think that's really important for the first chapter is sort of your energy or your tone. And this comes through just the type of sentences you write, what you're talking about, whether there's a chase going on, whether there's conflict on the first page. Like, what is the feeling that the reader gets from reading this first chapter? Um is it grim and dark? Is it ebullient and exciting? You know, setting expectations for the rest of the book. I, I feel in many ways that the first chapter is promise to the reader. You're telling them, look, this is what this book is going to be like. Here, here's the style of writing. Here's the character you're going to fall in love with or hate. And you want to fulfill that promise for the rest of the book. I think a third thing would be some sort of mystery and it doesn't have to be a classic mystery like who done it like who killed the butler it just any sort of question that the reader has about oh what happened in this character's past or what is going to happen in the near future something that makes the reader wonder about the storyline And then I'd say the fourth one would be some sort of emotional resonance, right? What does the reader feel like in this chapter? If your first chapter doesn't make them feel something, whether sorrow or happiness or jealousy, like any emotion that you can evoke from the reader, if you get at least one strong emotion from the reader in your first chapter, there is like such a higher chance that they are going to continue reading for the rest of the book.
0: Yeah, that beginning, it really has to signal the genre. And I have to know that, yeah, that's a book I want to read. And I guess it should also tie in with the cover. Like, I feel like I sample a lot of books based on the cover and the description. But then a lot of the times I start the sample and I'm like, oh, that's not what I expected. So I guess that's a hint for people around book marketing is these things have to work together. (laughs) It's not just a great cover. It's the cover and the blurb and the first chapter, right?
1: Yeah. If I had to choose between an incredibly beautiful cover that sort of misled readers what the book was about and like a pretty plain, basic cover that actually matched what the content of the book was, I'd choose the plainer cover. Right. Because the cover is also a promise to the reader about the genre, about what's going to happen in the story, about the characters. If you're showing a character on the cover, like all of that stuff is setting the reader up. So when they get to your book, they're prepared to read it.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned emotional resonance there and. This is all tough to get in the first chapter, right? And so, I mean, you can't really put everything in one chapter. But I was thinking about Colleen Hoover. I mean, her books really are so popular because she is so emotional. But what are your tips for actually writing these emotionally moving stories? Because not everyone wants to write gritty romance.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And when I talk about emotions, talking about like any emotion, like making the reader feel anything from... Anger to sadness. I mean, it it doesn't have to be. It does definitely doesn't have to be romance. So I think there's some common mistakes that writers make when they're trying to make the reader feel something. And the most common one is just showing a character feeling that emotion. Like the best way to get your reader to cry is not to show a character crying. That actually doesn't transfer. Like we can see a character crying and be like, oh, like okay. But if you show them in a situation where we think we would feel sad, then we're going to feel that sadness, whether the character is crying or not. For instance, I was just reading The Great Passion by James Runsey about um, Bach. And there's this poor kid who goes to a music school. He's starved, he's beaten, he's bullied at this all boys school. And I like really felt bad for this kid. Like he's just going through the worst experience at this boarding school. Now I didn't need him to like cower in the, Power in his bed every night and cry for me to feel that emotion as a reader. I felt that emotion because there was a situation that was terrible for him and I pitied him. So I think it's important to focus on situations in your book that are sad or happy or jealousy inducing or whatever, rather than just characters feeling that emotion.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it, is curiosity an emotion or is that that just a... I guess it is. I mean, that that's what I want in a first chapter. I want to feel curious about an open question.
1: Yeah, I think my point about mystery probably fits best with the idea of curiosity. You know, there's something that you don't know, and you're interested to learn more. Absolutely, that's key for a first chapter.
0: And then I was also just thinking about James Patterson, obviously who's famous for writing incredibly short chapters. <laughs> you think about James Patterson's books; reading one of his chapters is a masterclass. In fact, he has a masterclass on it, right? <laughs> but he yeah. manages to get all of that in one one chapter.
1: Yeah, I think he does a great job with starting chapters and ending chapters. You know, I, both of those are some linchpin moments in your book. Is like, how do you get the reader in? Like you start in the middle of a scene in media race, and then where do you end to make the reader turn to the next chapter? I think having short chapters makes readers feel smart because they feel like they're reading faster. And it also gives these really bite-sized narrative bits that always make you want to turn to the next one because it's very low obligation. Because sometimes if you read a long chapter and you're like, well, I don't want to start a whole other giant chapter. But if it's a really short chapter, you're like, well, just one more and just one more and just one more. You know, it's tough to stop reading.
0: And actually, this is something it's a good tip that you you mentioned there. It's splitting the scene between chapters. And I think we write in scenes as fiction authors. But when we structure a book, we structure in chapters and they're not the same thing. Hmm. So maybe you could explain the difference between a scene and a chapter and how we could maybe create a linchpin moment by splitting a chapter.
1: Well, I think writers often think that the end of a chapter is the end of a scene, and the best place to end a chapter is at the beginning of a scene, when characters arrive or when some new information happens. Because then if you split it right there, the reader's like, oh, well, I want to turn to the next chapter to continue this situation. It's very non-instinctual to, to end a chapter that way, but I think it's the best way to end a chapter to keep the reader reading Mm. Uh, As far as the difference between scenes and chapters, it depends on how long your chapters are. You might just have one scene or or a couple scenes per chapter. I mean, you could structure in so many different ways. Like a chapter could be in a singular place, but there's like three different scenes within that place. I think what's key for scenes is making sure there's a reason why you're breaking that scene. A really good reason to break the scene is because you want to skip the boring parts. You know, sometimes my authors that I edit for, they'll like, they'll have a scene and it sort of feels like the end of a scene and then they'll do like connective tissue. They'll write like, and then this person went there or then they did this or something like that. And I'm like, no, you should cut that whole section, put a little asterisk in there and just start once they're already in the new place or once they're already in the next part of the action. So what scenes allow you to do is to cut all the boring connective tissue and just focus on the absolutely best parts of your story.
0: Yeah, and I guess just to be basic about it as well, a scene is a character in a setting performing some kind of action for a reason. That's just a basic description. Is that how you describe it?
1: Yes, I would describe it that way. Sorry. <laughs> um, I feel like I always jump to like something I I haven't heard before. I feel like I'm often giving advice to authors who, I don't know, maybe have a little bit more experience under their belt. So, yeah, that's a great, like, basic definition of a scene in a particular place, doing something. There's some sort of conflict happening. There's some sort of tension happening. There's some sort of dramatic action. Sometimes, like, a character just sitting by themselves thinking really isn't a scene, right? Something needs to happen. They need to do something. They have to talk to someone. There has to be conflict with someone. Otherwise, the scene doesn't really work.
0: Absolutely. So let's get to some of the other things. You mentioned wonder. There is a chapter on wonder. So what do you mean by that? And what are some examples and ways to write it?
1: Man, sometimes when I'm reading a book, I just have this experience of laying the book down and sitting back and being like wide open mouth and being like, wow, like this author is so good because usually they've described something that's just incredibly beautiful or like a crazy scenario with bioluminescent waters that just like wows me. Um, and I I love those moments as a reader where I'm just abbergasted about like how cool this book is right now. So I wanted to think about as writers, how can we create those moments? And I think it's really important to make to sort of give like otherworldly senses. And if you're writing something like sci-fi or fantasy or something, or or even literary, um, I think it's easier to get to those otherworldly moments because you're writing such fantastical stuff. But I think it's equally possible in realism or historical or romance because the job there is to take everyday life and make it feel strange or wondrous to, to the reader. Like how can you take something which the reader experiences every single day And make them feel it in a new or different way. I think that's really, really the job of the writer is to take these experiences and make the reader feel something and experience something that they haven't before.
0: So how do we do that then? Is that through sensory detail or through metaphor?
1: I think you can do it with metaphor if you are describing extremely different things. I read this author once who described a flock of birds rising up from a tree all at once like a net. And I've always loved that metaphor. And every time I see birds rising from a tree, I see her metaphor now. I see this very thin mesh net rising up and falling down. But I also think you can do it through description, right? I feel like description is one of the main ways to create wonder. If you describe something really well, especially if it's something strange, like I'm thinking of um, Cormac McCarthy describes all these men riding through the desert between the U.S. and Mexico And there's like little lightning bolts, little little frictions of electricity that sort of are running all over their clothing. So it's completely dark, but there's these little blue flickers all over their bodies and the bodies of the horses. And I'm like, I just imagined that and thought, wow, that's really crazy and really beautiful. Um, Yeah, that that made me feel wonder.
0: That's interesting. I mean, the examples you've given are more literary fiction, really. Is that are you expecting that in
1: genre fiction? That's a good question. I guess it depends on the author. I do think you can feel wonder maybe at a romantic relationship, or something you can feel wonder, like the beauty that their love is finally coming together, something like that. I think if you're in, in well, say like in a historical novel or something that that's more commercial, commercially based, describing like a bustling street with all the wares and people selling things like that sort of level of description, I think can make the reader be like, Whoa, like that's a really cool place. Like I'm glad I'm reading about this book because it's transporting me to a new location and giving me all this fun information about this. So any type of maybe world building you're doing or anything where you're introducing the reader to something that's strange to them, I think can create wonder. And I think that applies for commercial books as well.
0: Well, me too. And it's interesting because a lot of my book research is around trying to make these moments because that's what I look for in books and trying to kind of think, what would my readers really love reading about? So I try and find cool settings or cool things that I can write about that make people go, wow, that's really awesome. So I think uh, just on that, though, some people find that difficult. And I was going to say about book research, you don't have to make it up from your brain. You can go onto YouTube. Like I, I wrote a scene in my thriller End of Days, which is about this Appalachian snake handling church. And I watched YouTube videos and took loads of notes and, but that, I mean, it's just a, like a wow situation <laughs> and to have, see what these people were doing and I to try and capture that in writing. So I guess that would be a tip for you don't have to make these moments of wonder up. You can go looking for input into your brain.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, snake handling is real, like it happens and yeah, to watch that actually happen on the page, I think would definitely inspire a sense of wonder.
0: And then we talked about endings of the chapter, but the ending for the whole book is also really important. And I mean, personally, I really need a resolution in my ending. And some people like cliffhangers at the end of a book. I do not. <laughs> so, how can we write better endings?
1: Well, whenever I have an author who tries a cliffhanger at the end of their book, they almost always do it a little wrong. So, let me give a little piece of advice on that. You can include a cliffhanger at the end of the book, but it has to be like a sort of minor storyline cliffhanger, if that makes sense. Like you have to end a book with some sort of resolution to the main problem or conflict that's been happening for the whole book, right? You can't leave a cliffhanger about that. So as long as you end the book and satisfy the reader on all the levels, all the mysteries that they were wondering about, all the major plot points, as long as you satisfy all those things then I think it is possible to give like a tiny cliffhanger at the end of the book. The trouble is when people try to make like some major part of your story, not resolve it and leave it as a cliffhanger. No, 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 no. No one's going to read the next book because they feel so unsatisfied with this book. So usually when I recommend cliffhangers, though, it's not at the end of the book. Usually they're for the ends of chapters. I feel like that's the proper place for cliffhangers. Yeah, I feel like your sole goal at the end of the book is is not necessarily to set the reader up for the next book, but really to make sure that this book resolves well and leaves them with a good emotional feeling and that way they will read the next book.
0: And when things uh, and also be surprising but not too surprising. I always use the example of Stephen King's Under the Dome. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I read all the way through that book and then when the ending happened, I was like that that was the wrong ending. <laughs> I don't know if you read that one, but I and, and I love Stephen King. No, I
1: haven't. I haven't. Oh, read okay, it. Um, right. I, but I like what you said about surprising. I I tell people it needs to feel both inevitable and surprising. Like when readers get there, they have to think, of course, it couldn't have been any other way, but also they couldn't have predicted it. And those are two very contradictory things. Because if you're setting the reader up for the ending, then the danger is they're going to guess it and it's not going to be surprising, right? Mm. But if it's almost too surprising, the reader's going to feel like, that doesn't feel real. I don't believe your story. You just did that to mess with the reader. So it's really holding both of those things in, in, in your hands when you're writing an ending, both surprising and inevitable,
0: Well, it's interesting because it is hard to write a novel and many of us use various tools to help us when we write. And there are plenty of books, obviously yours. I've got a book on how to write a novel. And then there are books that can help us with plotting and emotion and blah, blah, blah. And now, (laughs) as we record this in April 2023, we have tools like ChatGPT, which is uh, AI powered. Now, um, you came on the show in 2021 and we talked about NFT books and you have definitely kept up with the tech and you've actually got some blog posts on how novelists can use Chat GPT. So tell us how you think novelists and authors in general can use these tools and your thoughts on using AI with fiction.
1: Man, I think all writers are underestimating the way that AI is going to radically change writing. I don't, I think very, very few writers have really grappled with like the enormous sea change, which is going to happen and not like enormous sea change, which is going to happen in five or 10 years, the enormous sea change, which is going to happen in like six months or a year. I'm talking about people writing a book in a week with the assistance of AI. I'm talking about um, basically all copy editors and proofreaders being put out of work because AI is going to do your copy editing and proofreading. I mean, those are the big level things, but there's tons of small things as well. Everything from if you're having trouble describing a certain place, like ask, ask AI to describe that place for you. And maybe you don't like how they write it. So you rewrite it in your own voice, but then you can also get AI to write something in your own voice, you know, be like, (laughs) try to write it either, either pick a particular author and have it write it in their voice or, or say, or describe like how you want it to be written, like write it more colloquially or or in a breezy tone or write it in a gritty 1920s style noir tone. Like you can get AI to mimic all these styles of writing as well. I mean, I just wrote a post on like 26 ways that that writers can use AI and it's everything from writing the summary of your book to writing your query letter, to describing things in your book, to developing your characters. I mean, it's sort of like Google on crazy steroids is the best way to do research. That's that's for sure. The one thing I've discovered it can't do is give developmental advice, though. It's great at copy editing. It's not so great at line editing. But when I asked it to do developmental editing on a chapter in a novel, a short story, or a children's book, it gave really bad advice.
0: Well, that's mainly at the moment. I mean, we're, we are recording this in 2023. So if you're listening in the future, that may not be true anymore, because it's about the context window of how much you can feed it. And in GPT-4, it's a lot bigger. So you could pretty much do a novella now with GPT-4, which is in the paid version, because the input is a lot bigger. So it has a lot more it can review. But of course, a full length novel, you can't put a 100,000 words <laughs> into the chat box no, <laughs> for, no. it to, for it to think about.
1: No, I mean, I've been using chat GPT-4 and it wouldn't even allow me to put 16,000 words in there. And I have the paid version. So I don't know. Whether... Oh, it's the,
0: play- the playground, the API.
1: Oh, okay. A bit technical, yeah, sorry. But the problem <laughs> isn't putting enough in there. The problem is when I ask it to say critique point of view, it can never say like, You're doing great with point of view. Point of view is great. Like it it's mimicking what a developmental editor does. So it says, Oh, you're in limited third. Here's what you could do to change it. Sometimes that's not the problem, right? So it's a little weak on problems of judgment and taste, while it's really good at following the rules, which is why it's amazing at copy editing. Mm. But you're absolutely right. Like this is the first iteration. Like we're only at the beginning. What's going to happen in a year, in three years, in five years? Like The exponential growth is going to be pretty crazy. It's going to get smarter much faster than we think.
0: But personally, I feel like I'm excited and I feel like it's an augmentation of what I can do. I can move much faster with the help of GPT-4. One of the cool things I've been doing, I was just checking to see if you've put it in, I don't think you have, is that I can actually interview a character who is a certain thing that I don't know much about. So for example, I've got an urban explorer in my next novel and I said, you are Maxine, who is this urban explorer in Edinburgh, using your knowledge of Ubex platforms and chat rooms and things, respond to my questions as if you are Maxine. And this was so good because you know this we struggle to write the dialogue in the voice of a character we might not know that well. And in the past, authors have written character bios and stuff like that. But this is actually almost channeling the voice of someone. And it's coming back with words that I wouldn't have used myself because I didn't know them. And I have to do a heck of a lot of research to find the right words. So this kind of channeling of characters is really interesting.
1: Oh, that's that's brilliant. it's really fun
0: it's really fun as well
1: (laughs) I mean the ability to talk with your character that is that's so cool
0: it is very cool
1: (laughs) yeah and you might not even use like what they actually say but it's giving Mm. you all the language it's giving you their perspective like it makes it much easier for you to write them
0: yes yeah. exactly yeah and then I've been using it for loads of things like coming up with different monsters combining different monsters from different I'm writing a monster book at the moment it's called Catacomb <laughs> and oh, you know yeah. like a, a standalone horror book and coming up with different like what are the different monsters in these different cultures and how could we combine them together and what could be the names like names are really good as well what are the names that mean this or that or the other
1: yeah yeah I've been using it I've played around with world building aspects as well um, you know, Tolkien took decades to create all the languages and everything of Middle Earth. And I can say, hey, create a language that mixes Sumerian, Turkish and Pawnee Native American dialects, like create the alphabet, create the 100 most common words, then get Dali or Mid Journey to draw you a map of your fictional land. Like, <laughs> it's yeah. just so easy <laughs> to have all this stuff generated now. And you're like, oh, wow, now I have a language and a culture and land, the species, the languages, the cultures. Yeah, you can just ask ChatGPT to make all this stuff up or to give you five or 10 examples. And then you pick the one you really like.
0: Well, it's interesting because you mentioned mid-journey and I'm doing a lot of generative art as well. And there's a new word that people are using, which is synthography. I don't know if you've seen this, you know, like photography is pictures that you generate with a device, and synthography is pictures that you're generating with AI. And I was thinking about this with how writing might change using these tools. So given that you are an editor and that you see people's work, how do you expect people's books to change?
1: I think revision might become easier. I wonder, like, say you have a character and I tell them like, you know what? This character's dialogue, it's just, it's really flat on the page. Okay. And they can go back to Chat GPT and be like, okay, well, here's all the examples of this character's dialogue in my novel. Like take an excerpt from all these, uh, all these, every time this character speaks and tweak it in one way, make it a little bit more slangy or make her sound like she has an accent Or you can just give the character some dialogue. And then you can just take all those revised bits of dialogue and put them back into your novel. And suddenly you've done a revision, which could take a really, really long time and be tough to figure out. And it's done pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. And I mean, even incorporating the ideas like asking for twists, like I've been saying, okay, so this is how I think this plot's going to go. Give me 10 other ways that the characters could behave in this situation that would be plot twists. And it's coming up with things that I haven't thought of that are better ideas. And then I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to use that idea instead of what was originally my idea. And that makes the book a lot more Uh, twisty in this particular example. But I think having a sort of co-pilot for ideas is also really powerful.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I suggest something pretty similar to that. And I couch it in terms of like writer's block, say you're stuck in the middle of your novel, and you don't know what to do. Well, you could have ChatGPT summarize your novel up to that point, or you can write a summary and then say, yeah, give me five different ways the story could develop from here. Make sure to add a plot twist and a surprise and something like that. Like you can direct like, all right, these are the type of narrative developments that I'm looking for, give me suggestions. And yeah, a couple of them are dodgy, but there's almost always at least a few that you're like, ooh, that sounds interesting. (laughs)
0: Okay, well, we're almost out of time. But you also had another blog post where you said, when will AI start writing novels? And you've said not not great novels, but they will write novels, not great novels, but readable novels. I kind of disagree. I think that the quality of what we're even seeing now with us driving is great. But again, you're an editor. Will you know if someone gives you a fully generated novel, or or even one partially driven by a human, will you? Do you think you'll know?
1: That's a great question. Um, I don't think I, I will know. I don't know. And remember, we're right at the very beginning of this technology. I mean, think about in two years or three years. I really do think that AI will be able to put together an entire novel and what i mean by maybe not a great book is i mean you know there are some books that geez and i guess i am thinking of literary fiction where it's like the density of of language and everything is quite astonishing i feel like what chat gpt will be best at and other ai programs will be best at is like looking at ones with that are based on models looking at books based on models whether like plot models or characterization models and sort of hitting all those plot points. And I think that very soon we're going to see entire books written by AI. And I think humans will act more as editors. They go through and be like, okay, look, AI, that one chapter didn't work for whatever reason, rewrite it. And so you're giving feedback, you're almost acting like a beta reader for the AI program being all right, redo this part, redo this part, let's change the ending to this. But in general, the AI will be doing most of the heavy lifting of the sentence writing and the plot development and everything. And you're just guiding it.
0: It is interesting because I think people will choose the way they'll create depending on how they're feeling. So I definitely think you'll do different things depending on what you want to achieve. And as humans, we still want to create. I think that's the basic thing. So people listening, you'll still write how you want to write. We're not saying that this is the way it has to be, but it's another way to create. In the same way that I love taking pictures with my iPhone, I'm not a painter and I love using mid-journey. I I don't draw. (laughs) But I think as a writer, I still handwrite in my journal. I still type on my laptop. I still dictate and I use AI. So you can use all these things to create what you want. I guess that's how I see it.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of writers aren't going to use AI because they get a lot of pleasure out of doing it themselves. Hmm. And yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, I get a lot of pleasure out of coming up with something out of my own brain rather than having AI do it for me. But that doesn't mean you can't still use AI as a great tool to help you with revision or to help you with idea generation. And then you actually do the writing of the sentences. You just got to navigate those sort of relationships for yourself. What I don't get is writers who are like, oh, like, I hate all AI. It's like, well, do you use Microsoft Word? Like, there's like spelling and grammar correction on there already. Like, you've already been working as a hybrid author with technology for the last 20 or 30 years. And so this is just better software. So I don't think you should hate it. You should use it to whatever extent that you want to use it.
0: Fantastic. So where can people find you and your books and your courses and these blog posts online?
1: So you can Google BookFox or the URL of my website is thejohnfox.com. The name of my book is The Lynchpin Rider, which you can find on Amazon. All my courses are on my website. And then, of course, I'm on socials, mainly on TikTok, but also on Instagram and, uh, and YouTube as well.
0: Well, thanks so much for your time, John. That was great.
1: It was a pleasure talking with you, as always.
0: So I hope you found this episode useful in terms of writing the linchpin moments of your novel and also that you found John's thoughts on AI thought-provoking. So, next week I'm talking about writing memoir with Marion Roach Smith. So, yes, another craft episode, and uh, I've interviewed Marion on memoir before, but this time I actually have my own experience so I can ask different questions. I will also do a more extended introduction since I will be back in the UK in my better audio environment. So, in the meantime, happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today.